We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Before we get to our text, I was thinking about a popular TV show that ran for 12 seasons uh, from 2003 to 2013, so I'm dating myself uh, considerably there. It was called What Not to Wear. You might remember that show. Uh, The premise of the show is that people have really bad taste in clothes and style. That was the premise of the show, right? And some of these people have such bad taste in style that they actually don't know it, right? That's how bad it is. And they would have friends, family, co-workers. They would nominate them. Uh, They would nominate someone that they, one of their loved ones, that they felt needed a complete style makeover. And Stacy and Clinton, the hosts and stylists, would ambush this person and see if they are willing to undergo this complete makeover for the whole world to see, right? Like, we're going to ambush you and tell you that your style really stinks, and people really think this. Would you be willing to do this? Well, most people uh, saw this as a gift, but some people were so embarrassed or so appalled that people thought that they had bad style that they refused the help and the $5,000 new wardrobe that came along with it. But most people saw it as a gift and an opportunity to put their old life of style and put on a new life of style. And the transformations, honestly, were sometimes so radical that the very friends, family, or co-workers who nominated the person didn't even recognize them after the makeover took place. Their new life of style was such a radical break from their old life of style that they couldn't believe it was them. This morning, Peter describes something similar, but not a new wardrobe, that is put on, but literally a new life in Christ that is put on. In the Bible, there's a theme of this putting off and putting on. Paul uses this image in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And while Peter doesn't specifically use the terms put off and put on in our text, that is exactly the kind of imagery that we have this morning in our text. To put off the old life and to put on the new life in Christ. Let's read 1 Peter verses four, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the, very, with, the same, with, the, with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus Christ, your word made flesh that is given to us through the inspiration of your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we would see the life that we've put off and the new life put on, not only see it, but do it, live it experience it. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue in our series in 1 Peter that we've titled Exiles. Last week we were in chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, and we were confronted with the question, do we believe suffering is not the opposite of blessing? Do we believe that suffering is not the opposite of blessing? Because as we said, honestly, we often feel that way. We often think that we experience some form of suffering that we are outside of God's blessing. And frankly, some Christians even teach that. But Peter's explicit answer to us is no. Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. In fact, we can even experience blessing in our suffering. We saw from the text Because we are united with Christ in his suffering, we can live the beautiful life, or what's sometimes translated as the honorable life. We can live the beautiful life, the beautiful life of blessing, the beautiful life of suffering, the beautiful life in Christ. This morning, Peter continues to describe how our lives should reflect the reality of a new life in Christ, the beautiful life that he's been speaking of. And he does this by reminding us of what life apart from Christ looked like for those in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, that he was writing to, and what new life looks like in Christ, what we are to put off and what we are to put on. And Peter says that there is only one way this can happen, by the strength that God supplies. There's only one way that we can live this way. It is in the strength that God supplies. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own doing. It's not in our own goodness, our own anything. It is in the strength that God supplies. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we live by the strength that God supplies? Do we live by the strength that God supplies? Peter is quick to remind us that the only way to put off the old, old life and to put on the new life, the beautiful life, is by the strength that God supplies. He reminds us of this because it is so easy for us. In fact, I would say our default setting is to try to live this beautiful life in our own strength. Right? We may believe that Christ has saved us from our sin, and now it's up to me to do this. 
It's up to me to live this beautiful life. It's up to me to do this. Or even if you are here this morning and you are, are not a believer in Jesus Christ, but you're a moral person, it's up to me. I can do this. I have the strength in and of myself to live this beautiful life, however you define it. But you know that's hogwash. <laughs> we all know that. We all, in our experience, have found that we don't have the strength to do it ourselves, if we're honest. Do we live by the strength that God supplies? You know, we often, I think, live with this idea that we have God on standby, right? We've got him kind of in our back pocket. You know, maybe he's, you know, we just finished the World Series. Maybe he's in the bullpen warming up. We've kind of got God on standby just in case we get in too deep or if we need a little help. But Peter reminds us that that's just not possible. That's not the way that life works. And our main point in our text this morning is by the strength that God supplies, we can live the beautiful life. By putting off human passions and putting on passion for the will of God. Those are our two subpoints this morning. Putting off human passions and putting on passion for the will of God. By the strength that God supplies, we can live the beautiful life. First, putting off human passions, verses 1 through 6. Notice Peter does not begin with suffering in general, but with Christ's suffering. He doesn't just talk about suffering will, will be what uh, brings about a new way of life. It is specifically the suffering that Christ has experienced. His suffering is to be the foundation of our strength. His suffering is the foundation of our strength. Peter says that we are so united to Christ that as he has suffered, that he has put sin to death through his suffering, that sin is done away with, it is finished. Of course, we continue to struggle against sin in this life, which is why Peter immediately goes on to give instruction to arm ourselves. But the reality that we have to remember and understand as followers of Christ is that Christ has done it through his suffering. That the power that we have, the strength that we receive is through the suffering of Jesus Christ. That his suffering has done away with sin, that it is finished. We are to arm ourselves with the thought that is decisive for our new style of life, that Christ's suffering ended his conquest of sin and ushered in the resurrection of life, his re the resurrection life. Peter has already shown this connection with us, right? Jesus bore our sins in his body so that on the tree so that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness back in chapter 2, verse 24. When Jesus died to sin in our place, we died to sin. Just as when he rose, we were given new birth. Our decisive suffering in the body is not our own suffering, it is the death that we share with Jesus, 
who suffered in the body for us. And having died to sin, we are now alive to God. The rest of our life is no longer to be shaped by the desires of sin, but by the will of God. Again, we're not perfect. I'm not saying that anyone in here is perfect, least me. Yet there is a decisive difference for those who have come to Christ. We have died to sin, have gained the freedom to live according to the will of God, not according to the norms around us, not according to the social, societal expectation. And Peter then lists some of the ways that these folks lived in the past, and maybe some of you have lived this way in the past as well, or maybe you're living this way now. The popular religions that were uh, in that day that Peter is writing emphasized public celebrations in which everyone was expected to participate. We talked about this this morning in our high school, uh, Sunday school class, where um, where in Corinthians, Paul is talking about to the, to the Corinthians that uh, God does not give them temptations that they don't have a way to escape. And then he goes on to describe, Paul does, how this, is, how this works within the context of temple worship, temple worship of other gods where you would go and you would, the, the meat would be sacrificed and then everyone would eat together in this celebration. And that's how you got a lot of your food in that day by going and celebrating in the, in the temple. And Peter is saying something very similar here, right? You had these dinners at homes of the patrons of local deities that lasted far into the night with heavy drinking and men often pursuing sexual pleasure from slaves and concubines and courtesans and, and, and lovers. You have religious festivals, there were similar occasions for immorality. You had social clubs and household cults, and virtually all aspects of Greco-Roman life were permeated with the veneration of false gods and spirits. And although this behavior was not immoral from the general Greco-Roman perspective, Jews and Christians condemned it as immoral. You know, this is the context that Peter is writing in. That, that to, be, to not be antisocial, so to speak, to be social, to connect with your community, you were expected to engage in these kinds of temple or household pagan experiences. You were expected to live in your sensuality. You were expected to uh, express your pass passions to uh, engage in drunkenness and orgies, orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. This is what was expected of you if you were a good citizen. Now, many modern Christians have misunderstood and read these verses as an abolition against kind of all expressions of, of, of alcohol or all expressions of, 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 of uh, having parties with unbelievers or things like that. That is not what Peter is getting at here. He's not saying that you can't have drinks with friends or business associates. That's not what Peter has in mind here. 
Maybe something more modern would be like what we think of as like really out of control frat parties. That would be something that Peter would connect with our modern day. He is thinking of the sensual, out-of-control parties where everyone came together to honor the emperor and swear by his genius or to pay homage to the city's patron gods. And as you can see, this would promote social unity in a way, right? (laughs) And it's supposed to maintain favor with the gods. But Christians, Peter's saying, you cannot engage in this type of behavior even as those who engage in it might call you antisocial. In verses 5 through 6, he goes on, pagan friends may criticize this antisocial lifestyle, but they will give an account to the Lord, Peter says, and they might even mock the idea of faith that you have because while you believe that death has been conquered by the resurrection, you still die, right? That's what Peter's getting at here in verses 5 through 6. but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that through judgment, that, through, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit and the way, to God, the way God does. He is not saying that we preach the gospel to the dead. What Peter is saying in this context is that when Christians died, they're were likely those who mocked them. See, you still die too. I thought you said that you would live forever. You believe in this resurrection, but yet your loved one died. Peter is pointing out that everyone will be judged even after physical death. But the believer who has died has not died as everyone else dies apart from Christ. Karen Job's commenting on this verse says, with that assumption, a, a pagan critic could reasonably question what good the gospel is since it seems so restrictive of behavior in this life. And then the believer dies just like everyone else. Peter, however, teaches that because people will be judged even after physical death, Contra the pagan exception, the gospel message of forgiveness and judgment is still efficacious. Death does not invalidate either the promises or the warnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Peter has called us to put off human passions in the power of Christ and the strength of Christ, and to put on passion for the will of God, verses 7 through 11. He begins this section by saying, the end is near, and this isn't chronologically, but theologically. This is the final phase of God's plan of redemption by the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. We are, from the time Jesus ascended to heaven until he comes again, we are in the last times. And when this age ends, when Jesus returns to overthrow sin and establish his new order, that day is near in the sense that it could happen at any time. So Peter says, we must live in light of Jesus' return and be clear-minded, self-controlled, prayerful, and full of love and forgiveness. 
He says that these self-controlled and sober minds means kind of a watchful waiting for the Lord's return, a, a, a realistic living. It's practical wisdom that comes from the knowledge of the Lord. It's this idea that living in this way equips us for prayer. And Peter understands prayer as something that is sober, direct, and profoundly thoughtful that communicates with the Lord. That we need to be clear-minded and sober to be able to properly pray for the needs of our, our own needs, for the needs of loved ones, for the needs of the world. And so that is what he's getting at when he talks about the self-controlled and sober minds and how it affects our prayers. In verse 8, he goes on to talk about uh, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And this new life in Christ is lived in a community of loving service inside the church. Ed Clowney describes this kind of love in this way. The word describes something that is stretched or extended. The love of the saints keeps stretching in both depth and endurance. It is the reach of God's love that stretches our love. We love because he first loved us. Our love, kindled by God's love, is stretched by exercise. It is stretched by covering a multitude of sins. The love that covers our sins is the love of God, but our love modeled on Christ's love can also cover sin in his name. Our love can't pay the price for sin. Only Christ has done that. But our love can imitate the mercy of God. Our love can forgive, and forgiveness always pays a high price. And Peter reminds us that hospitality is a way to show this love a way to show this love to one another. As Christine Pohl explains in, in, in her book on hospitality, as a way of life, an act of love, an expression of faith, our hospitality reflects and anticipates God's welcome, simultaneously costly and wonderfully rewarding. Hospitality often involves small deaths and little resurrections. By God's grace, we can grow more willing, more eager to open the door to a needy neighbor, a weary sister or brother, a stranger in distress. Perhaps as we open that door more regularly, we will grow increasingly sensitive to the quiet knock of angels. In the midst of a life-giving practice, we too might catch glimpses of Jesus who asks for our welcome and welcomes us home. And after Peter reminds us to continue to show hospitality in this, in this strength that we have in Christ Jesus. He reminds us that we have each received a gift and to use it to serve one another. Because we receive gifts from God, they are never simply ours. Right? Sometimes I think when we th think about spiritual gifts, we think about, what's my spiritual gift? I need to figure it out. What is my gift? What is my gift? What is my gift? and we don't realize that the gifts aren't for us. <laughs> They're for others. They are for the use of God through us to bless and to grace others, not to bless ourselves. Gifts 
are what God gives us. They do, in a sense, belong to us, but they are gifts we receive from God, not for our own possession, but for, but for others. God, from the beginning, created mankind for diversity within unity. And Paul in the epistles lists, lists out many of these gifts that God in Christ through the Spirit has given us, but we are wrong to think that those lists are complete. In our Old Testament reading, I'll just point this out. Moses reports that God gave uh, Baziel and uh, Ohelab uh, artistic skill to construct the tabernacle. Does artistry show up in the New Testament as a gift of the Spirit? No. But it sure does in the Old Testament. We miss the point if we try to specify the precise number and categories of gifts. The main lesson that the New Testament writers, that the whole Scripture is showing us, we have diverse gifts. And we find them by actually living and serving one another. My friend Josh Eby, a pastor in Texas, uses the phrases gifts and graces when he talks about the way Christians have been gifted by God for ministry. Not all that God gives are abilities for doing. Right? We often think that way. Oh, what is the gift that God has given me for doing something? Some of the gifts that he gives us are just, just for being. Just being. To be that person that shows up. To be that person who is there, even not to say anything or do anything. There are gifts and graces that the Lord has gifted his people with. Abilities for doing, sure, like we saw in our Old Testament reading, but some for just being. This morning, as we come to a close, Peter has presented the positive side of the contrast in lifestyle. What we have put off and now that we put on, right? We have put off drunken debauchery and license and put on sober, clear-mindedness. We've put on love and put off lust. The Christian home is, puts on hospitality, not orgies. Ministry replaces exploitation. We give of ourselves. The self-indulgent life of the pagan fails to recognize this life in the relationship to anyone else. Most importantly, in relationship to the Lord. But the Christian, because the end of all things is near, understands that the, we only have a short time to live this beautiful life, and to bring glory to our God and Father through Jesus Christ, and in the process, win others to putting off the old and putting on the new. By the strength that God supplies, we can live the beautiful life, putting off human passions and putting on passion for the will of God. Let's pray.